in my teacher's footsteps, Chapter Five, read by Nick Scott. After three days staying at the Tibetan Buddhist monastery in the remote Humla Valley, in western Nepal, our group of pilgrims continued their walk, following Ajang Sumedho, over the Himalayas to Mount Kailash in Tibet. Chapter Five: Working with Others. We tumbled down the slope on leaving the monastery. After two days' rest, everyone was overflowing with energy. Then we bowled along the wide track at the valley bottom, which was again halfway to becoming a road, and flanked with stone retaining walls. From there, the path led into a gorge, with light green shimmering poplars standing bolt upright beside the river, creating a delicate contrast to the dark twisted pine trees on the dry slopes above. Ajahn Amro admired the rose bushes, which sprawled beside the path, commenting on how exquisite the delicate pink of their flowers were against the grey green of the churned river water. He was right. In fact, the whole scene was delightful, but I wasn't enjoying it myself. Instead, I was worrying. I was concerned that with our enthusiasm, we'd gone the wrong way. The new road had parted from the old track as we entered the gorge, and it was now climbing the valley side above us. I was also concerned that both Rory and Ajahn were just taking photos of the lovely scenery, but not including people, which is what I'd need for a book. I tried mentioning it to both of them. Ajahn Amro was not impressed, and I was also concerned. About all that energy, Apamado and Rory, the two youngsters in the party, were rushing along so that both were now out of sight. That's how we could have taken the wrong route. My mind yammered, and it was how we'd end up doing something else foolish. Eventually, the beauty of the gorge overcame my worries. I wasn't responsible. I could just enjoy it. I'd enjoyed the lack of responsibility walking up to the monastery, but now that old self, walk leader, had reappeared, making it painful for me and painful for others. Let it go, I told myself. So I strolled along at the back again, enjoying the nature, baubles flying about in the tree canopy. A flash of crimson beak telling me at least one was a black bulbul, warblers calling from dense vegetation, and then the arced flight of a blue magpie crossing the river between two poplar trees, trailing its long tail. So far on this pilgrimage, 
our group was mostly harmonious. Of course, everyone had their own style. Ajahn Amro walked along with steady determination. Damarako was the opposite, often ahead, but easily waylaid, while Apamado's attention was taken with everyone else's needs. Rory had his lumbering gait, while Chris liked to walk at a very steady but slightly slower speed, so he didn't stop when we did, but passed through our resting group with a brief salutation. He wore two-toned grey trousers and shirt, with a wide-brimmed grey hat, and the way he passed us, often just touching the brim of his hat, brought to my mind the lonesome cowboy. He'd explained on the first evening that he was practising something he'd read on how to keep the focus just on the walking itself. But despite these dissimilarities, everyone, not just Apamado, was also looking out for each other and we were getting on well. Further on, the old track left the riverside, climbing up a bare rock outcrop. There I came round a corner to find most of the party gathered, concerned around Rory, who was lying propped against a rock at the start of the climb. He sprained his ankle badly. What shall we do? Get it into cold water to stop it swelling, I told them. Rory got his boot off, and Apamado helped him to limp down to the riverside. Then he should continue. It might be really painful, but it won't do any harm. But tomorrow he'll probably be unable to walk at all. So we shared out his load, the others then going on ahead for the meal, while Rory and I brought up the rear. Rory limped slowly along, leaning heavily on two walking sticks, while I walked behind, wondering how we were to deal with this. It might be days before Rory could walk again, and at Hilsa the Chinese land cruisers Roger had organised would be waiting to drive us to Mount Kailash. Should we leave him at the next stop? That didn't feel right. Or should we hire a mule or pony for him to ride on? but a mule or pony couldn't traverse the snowfields on the high pass. I also felt partially responsible for his misfortune. I apologised as he limped along ahead of me for nagging him about the photos. It was only after my nagging that he'd started to rush ahead or drop behind so he could capture the rest of us walking through the scenery. It wasn't that, he gasped in short sentences between limps. I I was enjoying, limp, having energy, limp, after the sickness, limp. But still, I knew if I hadn't made a fuss, he mightn't have done it. It all felt strangely familiar. I'd been in exactly the same situation with Ajahn Sumedho. He limping along in pain with a sprained ankle, me just behind concerned what to do, and uncomfortably aware of my own contribution. Up until then the walks with him had always gone remarkably well, 
any problem that arose with my plans, somehow events would always conspire to resolve it. So by the time Ajahn Sumedho asked me if I'd like to go to the Pyrenees, along with Ajahn Suchito, I'd come to take the fortunate serendipity for granted. On that walk, Ajahn Sumedho was really tired, run down and having problems with his digestion. So we had to take it slowly at first, with lots of stops. But for the last few days, after we'd crossed over the Pyrenees into Spain, he was better. There, we followed a high valley with wonderful old villages made entirely of the same honey-coloured stone. Houses, cobbled streets, enclosed watercourses with washing places, church and the marketplace. Ajahn Sumedho even felt fit enough to take the route back to France I'd earlier decided we best avoid. A high pass with a long steep climb that we toiled up for hours, switching back and forth across the slope under a hot sun. We made the top in the late afternoon, but it was there that I got things wrong. Delighted to have made the pass and knowing that we now only had to descend to a small French town below, where we would be catching a bus next morning, I relaxed. When we set off again, I went on ahead, enjoying the view out across the more steeply incised and wooded French valleys, and scanning the slopes for ibex, paying no heed to my companions. The pace I set was far too fast for Ajahn Sumedho, so that he tripped on a boulder and twisted the ankle of his bad foot. I knew immediately, as I did with Rory, that I had to keep him moving and get him down the mountain as far as we could. But he was in a lot of pain as he limped slowly along. Then, from nowhere, a mountain thunderstorm gathered above us, rumbling ominously and darkened the sky. Soon we were struggling along in heavy rain with lightning flashing about the high peaks around us. We were suddenly into a hell realm. There was no shelter and anyway I knew we shouldn't stop. It was heart-rending walking slowly behind him, him sodden and limping in pain, and me blaming myself. Eventually, after a couple of hours, Ajahn Sumedho could go no further. The storm had passed, and we could see a small hamlet way beneath. But we were on a rough, stony track, descending a steep slope. The only flat place was a switchback in the track, just large enough to erect his small tent. Inside, we laid out his mat and sleeping bag, and helped him in. He sat there looking completely drained. Then Suchito asked him, Is there anything else we can do, Ajahn? In the small pocket in the top of my pack. Yes? There's a cigar. He'd been given it by George Sharp, who knew he'd once smoked them. George said it was in case it all got too difficult. Suchito took the cigar from the little tube it was in, lit it and passed it to Ajahn Sumedho, who sucked slow and long 
waited, and then gave out a very long sigh. Next day the hell realm was over. At first light we left him in his tent and followed the old track down to the village, where there was a telephone box and a small shop had just opened. I telephoned the friend we were to stay with that night, Sue Lumrockcliffe, who offered to drive the three hours it would take to come and get us. Then we climbed back with breakfast. We even made him coffee on our little stove. When Sue got to the hamlet, she insisted her old French 2CV could drive up that track. That's what they were made for, she assured us. And she was right. We had to clear the track in places ahead of her, but she got all the way to Ajahn Sumedho. That afternoon, we were sitting in the shade of a grapevine on the patio of an old French farmhouse that Sue and her partner Neil had just finished renovating to let. It felt like heaven. It was that experience that led me to warn Andrew Yates that when you organise a trek for Ajahn Sumedho, everything will go unusually well. But if something should start to go wrong, it can do so spectacularly. And if that happens, not to take it personally. Rory's sprained ankle didn't seem as bad as Ajahn Sumedho's, though. We were slow, but we didn't have to stop. Eventually, way above us, there was Apamado standing on a crag, looking back down the track, concerned. As well as our meal waiting for us, Indra had a basin of cold water for Rory to soak his foot. He'd found another family who provided wayside meals this time in a shelter against their house roofed with a blue tarpaulin. After a good rest, bathed in blue light, Rory felt he could go on, put up with the pain, and that the twisted ankle would eventually be all right. He twisted ankles in the mountains several times, he told us, because one of his legs is slightly shorter than the other. That's why he ambles along in the way he does. The meal was the same every day in Humla. Dal bat, rice and lentils, usually with some kind of vegetable, this time potatoes. It's the basic food of Nepal, the fuel that porters run on, and the only food available at the tea houses we ate at. Most of us had no problem with it, but Rory was still feeling nauseous, and Damaraco had explained in Kathmandu that he needed to eat meat. When I became a monk, I tried being vegetarian, but it didn't suit my body. I have to have meat. On the pilgrimage, he was always on the lookout. Have you got any meat? Is there any meat, Indra? But there never was. Chris asked him once what he'd like, if he could get whatever he wanted. Well, bacon, egg and sausage. Nothing can beat that. But there was only ever dull bark. That meal stop had been in the village of Muchu, where my small map marked another monastery. As we rested, I asked Indra about it, who then asked our host. Yes, 
It was at the top of the village, she told us. We could visit, and the Gelongs, monks, were there, but we couldn't speak with them. So when we came to a fork, Indra asked if we wanted to climb up to the monastery, to which I immediately said yes. However, there was a polite but loud cough from behind me. Nick, should you not consult the rest of us? inquired Ajahn Amro. We might not want to take a detour with an extra climb. Ah, it hadn't taken me long to get lost in that old walk-leader self again. But then Damaraka responded with, I want to see anything like that. So we did climb the steeper path, but only after deciding in the correct, collective way. Muchu's monastery proved a very different affair to the previous one. Past the last house was a simple, long, rough stone hut with an uneven, corrugated iron roof and its door hanging open to admit the deep chant of a Tibetan religious ceremony. Stooping to step inside, we found half a dozen lay monks lying down one wall, all with long, glistening black hair various rosaries about their person and clutching sacred bells in their hands as they chanted from loose-leaf pages. A large drum hung from a low beam, while cymbals, a conch shell and a trumpet lay ready to use before them. Several other locals sat against the back and the other side wall, twirling prayer wheels, and at the front, sitting slightly higher, was an older lay monk with long grey hair leading the recital. Beyond him, the shrine, half obscured by large wobbly butter offerings, was hard to discern in the low light created by the few flickering butter lamps. Room was made for us on the dirt floor, where our monks dutifully took up their meditation postures, but I soon slipped out to explore the adjacent building site. This proved to be the walls and roof of a new temple, a smaller version of the one at the monastery where we just left. Inside, a group of young women tended an open fire amidst the building rubble, frying round breads in a large wok filled with spitting oil. Seeing me, they offered tea and food. Later, a young man, summoned from the village below, told me in English that their Rinpoche would arrive from Kathmandu the next day, when they'd have their big ceremony, that their monks were doing a six-day silent fast with chanting, not three days, and that they were of the Sakya sect of Tibetan Buddhism. I asked who was building the temple. The villagers themselves, he told me, to replace an old one that had been in ruins but another village had provided the craftsmen who were doing the wood carving. There's a smiling group photograph of us, with the young women, the lay folk from the temple and the young man. But of course, not the lay monks, who just kept chanting. We departed down the hill's other side, full of tea and bonhomie, me carrying a large bag of sampa, the ground-roasted barley which is Tibet's staple food, given for our monks. 
the chanting died away as we descended, passing broken beer bottles lying amidst nettles, and the remains of a dead puppy with a dried grimace to its face. It felt a wilder country now. We regained the main track just before a police check post where our papers were inspected. Beyond that, the track crossed the vibrant green barley fields of the village and then wound up the far valley side. We were now in the rain shadow to the north of the mountains we'd been passing through. The valley slopes had none of the previous verdant forests. Instead, they seemed raw and ravaged, orange to ochre coloured and dotted with grey bushes and dark brown bedrock. In a few places, remnants of high-altitude pine woodland clung to the steepest slopes or sheltered in gullies. The trees more squat than those lower down the valley. Elsewhere, only the carcasses of a few pines remained, hacked and burnt, along with the occasional ancient gnarled and twisted juniper. It was much like the Atlas Mountains had been in Morocco, and for the same reason. Low rainfall plus grazing domestic animals. Because the productivity is so low, the animals are few, so it's easy to think such habitat is natural. In the valley ahead, I could make out only one herd. So high on the opposite side, they appeared as black dots. Maybe yaks, but more likely dzor, the yak-cow hybrid. Previously, this upper valley would have been clothed in pine woodland, which was then cut and carried on yaks into Tibet, where timber is at a premium. It must be a bleak land to farm. The only fields were the occasional small bright green patches in the valley bottom, irrigated by the river. At this altitude, they could produce only one poor crop of barley a year. It would be the animals which provided most of the diet. There were several places where the steep valley sides had slipped, creating lighter coloured rents in the mountain fabric. Our path had regularly crossed such landslides since we left Simicot. Some were new, others old enough to be partially revegetated. Such action is natural, caused by the river slowly cutting into the valley. But with deforestation, they have become much more frequent, further depleting the natural resources. We were now also much closer to the snow. The tops of the ridges, either side and ahead, were all crested white. Then, as we came level to a side valley, we could see white Himalayan giants towering beyond the ridges, glaciers on their sides. But there was now little wildlife, an occasional eagle or vulture circling far off. Plus, the red and white helicopter flying above us, up or down the valley, with its load. Rory was recovering now. The two of us were still behind, me carrying his camera, water and other knees as he swung along on his two walking sticks. His pain had eased, so that I had trouble keeping up, particularly on the climbs. 
The higher we got, the more difficult I was finding the climbing. It was Anne Dew who had struggled on Ajahn Samedo's walk up this valley, she told me. I'd been sick from the beginning. I caught Alison's flu, so by the time we started walking, she was over it, but I had a fever. I remember Andrew saying in Kathmandu that it was up to me. I could stay behind or I could go with them, but they couldn't wait. I found the flight to Simicot hard. I threw up when we landed and was really woozy for the first few days. But by the time we got to the monastery, the worst was over. But then the next day, the altitude started to kick in. It was really ironic, as I was supposed to be the doctor, there particularly for Ajahn Samaida. But he was fine, better than many of us. He'd share his spirulina drink with me. Alison told me that despite this, Anne was still insisting on carrying her pack. We were trying to persuade her to give it over to one of the porters like I did. She would sometimes give in, but often she would just say, No, no, I can do it. It was really hard to watch. She was suffering so unnecessarily. She should have gone back, really. Andrew said he'd actually suggested that at the monastery in Yalbang, but by then Anne thought she was over the flu. Andrew also told me that Michael, like Alison and Ajahn Samedo, was not carrying his gear. It just looked like he was. I picked up his pack one day and it was light as a frigging feather. He'd scurried all his stuff away in his tent bag given to the porters. When I asked, he said he got the heavy camera and all the film. But the camera was round his neck. Andrew told me this as I struggled to keep up with him as we walked a route over the Lake District mountains that he usually ran. So I felt some sympathy for Michael, who would have been in his early fifties when they climbed up through Humla. Although I was glad I wasn't carrying my gear, I still got the occasional pang of guilt watching the porters lumbering along ahead. But they didn't seem to be struggling. They often walked together, leant forward with the weight, chatting. Indra told us by local standards their loads were easy, as our packs were much lighter than most trekkers brought. Still, I noted each porter regularly checked the weight of the other's loads to make sure he wasn't carrying extra. Their names were Perry, Bala and Gaia, but early on Damarako had renamed them Jerry's the one who's always singing, Bill has the round Nepali hat, and Ozzie is the little guy who's the leader. Having bypassed the climb to the second monastery, the three of them were now distant figures on the track ahead, opposite the black scar I'd been watching since we left Muchu. I still couldn't believe that this was where the Canali came from, as shown on my map as the main valley itself seemed to continue straight ahead unaffected. However, as we got nearer, 
there became no question. The main body of water was exiting from a black chasm, while the main valley beyond it had a tributary no larger than the one coming in from the valley on the other side to the chasm. The chasm was the gorge cut by the river through the final and highest Himalayan ridge. And this was why our route followed the valley ahead, ascending and crossing the Nara La Pass, from where we would drop steeply back down to the Kanali River, as it entered the gorge from Tibet. At a certain point, the will doesn't work, and he was compelled to surrender. The difficulties of walking through Mother India had done its work. Chris had asked Ajahn Amro the purpose of pilgrimage, and Ajahn Amro was using Ajahn Suchito's walking pilgrimage with me in India as an illustration of how the pilgrim is confronted with lessons they need to learn. Before that pilgrimage, when Suchito decided something, you just got out of the way, or used some skillful means to redirect the willfulness. It wasn't that he was really pushing, but it was like water flowing. If it was going to go, it was going to go. After the pilgrimage, he was adaptable, more feminine, and much easier to live with. I should know. I was living and working with him right through those years. But Chris hadn't quite got it yet. Like Suchata giving milk rice to the Buddha. Chris's view of the spiritual journey could be surprisingly romantic. No, more like being put through a meat grinder. So painful he was forced to change. He became far more flexible. There was that capacity to surrender. He appreciated the change so much himself, it became a major part of his practice and teaching. For me, that pilgrimage had a similarly profound effect. It was the hardest thing I'd ever done, I told them. I was humbled by my inadequacy. And according to other people, became a much nicer person after it. I'd suffered from too much confidence and positivity. Whatever we are dealing with, whether greed, anxiety, despair or self-doubt, they may have different lessons, but the process is always the same, explained Ajahn Amaro. Yes, we only let go of different aspects of ourselves through thoroughly experiencing the suffering they cause in a situation where we can make the connection. That's what pilgrimage can provide. We'd have conversations like this in the evening, gathered in the house where we were camping, drinking tea, taking turns at pumping water through the filter for drinking the next day, before dispersing to our tents. That pump was a godsend. 
a major aspect of the difficulty of that earlier pilgrimage was the regular bouts of dysentery Ajahn Suchito and I suffered, particularly once we were in the mountains. Mountain people have no tradition of wells for water. Instead, they use a clean side stream. But as the population increases, that no longer works. We were reminded of that the next morning. Indra told us that one of the porters, Bill, or Bala, had bad dysentery. It had started at Yalbang and had still not cleared up. Bill sat there looking sad. Now he wanted to go home with the money he'd earned so far. His load, Indra told us, would be carried instead by our host to the next stop where we would hire another porter to take the load over the pass. Our host, meanwhile, was preparing to leave. Her name was Seren Lama. All these people had Lama as their last name, indicating they were Buddhist. We'd stopped the previous afternoon in a hamlet where the two valleys and the gorge met on a small flat plain amidst the piles of sand and rock deposited by ancient glaciers and since reworked into ridges by the river. We'd chosen to stay at Serin Lama's house because it had empty fields beside the river for camping. But we soon realised the best aspect of our choice was what we were able to do for our host. Serin Lama was a widow who'd lost her husband two years before. A hardy woman in worn blue jeans, sneakers and a wasted green frilly top with a necklace of white and red stones. She was delighted at the opportunity to receive us. She lived there alone, she told Indra when we asked. All her three sons were now young novices at the Yalbang Monastery, while her daughter was living with her sister and attending the school there. Hers must have been a hard and lonely life. Only one of her fields was sown with barley, the other two lay fallow, and although she had a few animals in the shed next to her small house, her larger barn had been abandoned. The roof was starting to cave in, and the flat area in front was covered in tall weeds many supporting yellow daisy flowers with deep brown centres. But with us there, nothing was too much bother. She went to neighbours to round up supplies, tidied the small building where we ate, and the porters and Indra slept, and offered tea and food over and again. Now she was keen to carry the load. We were at her first opportunity that year to earn any money. What else could we do but agree? It was a long, hard climb the next morning, the first of two that would get us up to the pass. Serin Lama seemed determined to show the other two porters she was as good as them. Being of Tibetan stock, she was of a larger build and more adapted to the altitude. So it was she who arrived at the top of each section of climb, to sit there, not even out of breath, as the rest of us laboured up to join her. 
Initially, the track ran beside the small river, where two recent landslides meant that we had to climb a narrow path up and across steep slopes of loose, crumbling soil, in constant danger of slipping into the river, cutting into their base. We then crossed a wooden bridge to the other shore. From there, the others climbed straight up following a shortcut. But Rory and I took the longer route, as we'd spotted that it passed the lip of a cliff from where we could look into the chasm. We put down our packs and crept to the edge. The gorge was only some 30 metres wide where the river surged out beneath us, the silt-laden water in a rolling boil, and the walls rising close to vertical, way above us. A slight path led along the cliff wall on our side into the gloom. We wondered where it might lead, but neither of us dared take even one step along it to find out. When we set off again, the others were climbing the long slope ahead. Rory, now limping only slightly, was able to gain on them. But despite trying to do the same, I dropped steadily further behind. The incline wasn't that steep, less than one in three. But I only had the one low gear and had to stop every five minutes to regain breath, my head swimming with the effort and my legs like jelly. Once I'd been so good at this. As a walk leader in Northumberland, I was known for the nonchalance with which I led large walking groups, letting them string out on the trail rather than keeping them all bunched together. I was able to do that because I knew I could overtake them on the climbs. On mountain treks, I always carried a larger pack with all the extra things the group might need. On the walk in the Pyrenees with Ajahn Sumedo, I remember a climb from a French village which rose straight up for several hours to a long, high ridge that we would be able to follow for days. I climbed it with three days' food for three people on my back, plus my own things, while Suchito carried Ajahn Sumedo's tent and other heavy items. I was like a heavy goods vehicle in bottom gear, but I made it. I'd chosen that route because the long ridge would be an easy walk for Ajahn Sumedo in the tired state he was in. The top was covered in short alpine turf with the occasional small outcrop of rocks, undulating but with no real climbing and views either side across the Pyrenean foothills. We could stroll along for the rest of that day. However, a few hours later, a mountain thunderstorm gathered over the main peaks ahead of us and then started to roll our way with rumbling thunderclaps and lightning forking down to the land below. It brought tremors to my mind, as I'd woken up two nights before from a dream in which Ajahn Samedo had been killed by lightning because I'd left him behind. There was no way down from the ridge, which was totally exposed being the highest land. The sides were far too steep. The only small path leading down shown on my map was still some way ahead. 
but Arjun Samedo had only one speed. I'd hurry up, but then he'd be left behind, and I'd recall my dream. To make it worse, both monks carried metal walking poles. As the storm got closer, heading straight our way, I got increasingly agitated. Eventually I turned to Suchito by my side. This is really dangerous. We're not going to make the side path in time. What we should do is get rid of the metal poles and lie down. But making Ajahn Samedo lie down in the rain... You don't have enough faith, Nick. Ajahn Samedo's never going to die in a thunderstorm. So we went on, lightning starting to crash down around us, the first of the rain coming heavy and hard. I was shaking so hard with anxiety, I could no longer speak. Then, at last, we reached the path. We scrambled down it to a small alpine hut, door open, and in a trice we were inside, with the rain beating on the roof. Once I'd recovered, I explained to Ajahn Samedo why I'd been in such a state, and what Suchito had said. Huh, he replied. If you'd told me, I would have lain down. I'd forgotten how unconcerned Suchito could be about death. But those days were over. How can you lead walks from the back? Two years before, a couple of younger monks, one of them, Apamado, asked me to lead a walk following the St Paul's Way through the mountains of Turkey. I'd reluctantly agreed, but found on the long climbs I couldn't keep up with the others. It was not for lack of fitness. I'd trained in the Irish mountains, and by then we had walked for three weeks in Turkey easily long enough for anyone to get fully fit. But I still struggled to keep up whenever we climbed, remembering my mother telling me when she got to 60, I still love walking, Nick, but I can't do heels. Age, I reckoned, had brought the same lesson to me. There was a day in Turkey when I asked the two monks to lead instead. One group of lay people had just left us and we were to meet another in a town ahead the next day. Having shed the responsibility, suddenly I felt really tired. But the monks kept losing their way and in the afternoon, frustrated, they asked me to take over again. Still tired but trying to map read, I tripped on a steep rocky descent and cut my head badly. Then, sitting at the root of a small tree, my head now bandaged with a bloody white cloth, and having agreed to go back to the town to get it stitched up, I asked them to witness my vow. I would never, ever lead a walk again. So now here I was in Nepal, climbing another steep stony track, on my own at the back again. But at least, thanks to the vow, I was not feeling responsible for anyone. This was the third climb that morning, and the steepest. On one stop, to regain my breath, a Tibetan lady my age passed, carrying a heavy pack, wearing rough trousers, and descending 
using an umbrella as a walking stick. I managed to nod a greeting, but I was feeling so weak, I could hardly string a thought together. All I could do was put one foot above and beyond the other, climbing slowly, stopping again and again to recover, staring blankly upwards at just how far there was still to go. Way above, I could see prayer flags fluttering and a pile of stones, but there was no sign of the others. At the top, I found only Rory waiting, who thought the others had gone on to a tea shop. We found them twenty minutes along the track, standing about a white Chinese jeep parked outside a solitary house, along with a herd of Zo with large horns which were sitting chewing the cud. Indra was excited. Nick, Nick, new plan. This jeep take us to Sip Sip, all together. Then we climb down to Hilsa for night. No need for camping. What you say? The others stood there expectantly. But I was disappointed. I might have been struggling but we were now amidst the alpine meadows with the first flowers showing their heads. It was up here that we might also see interesting wildlife, particularly if we camped the night. I stood there and felt sad. Do we have to? Isn't there some way to camp and go over in the morning? The night before, Indra had told us his problem. The locals had yet to take their grazing animals up to Sipsip, so there was no hut for him and the porters to sleep in, and no way of cooking our meals. But bless him, he now got to talking to the two waiting locals. After a lot of discussion, he announced, This man and his brother can carry food. Cooking pot and blankets up to hut, just below Sipsip. There we can camp and it proved a good choice. We'd now completed the first series of climbs, and from there the new road contoured along the valley side. It was stony and rutted, but made pleasant walking. In an old jeep crammed with all of us, including porters and luggage, it would have been hell. We had our meal at a road camp where earth-moving machines making the new road were still parked from the winter, in a tea house stacked with boxed supplies. The small shrine was on a shelf above one which was filled with bottles of beer and Fanta. Beside it, the Buddhist scriptures wrapped in crimson silk had been respectfully placed on three neatly spaced cans of Coca-Cola. Serin Lama bought a paper bag of oranges with her hard-earned cash, waved goodbye, then set off back down the valley, cradling her purchase. The air was now cool and we were above the tree line. That afternoon we enjoyed strolling along, gazing out at a wider rolling valley of stony green pasture rising up to mountain ridges. The pasture was a mix of rough grassland and low spiny shrubs, some coming into flower, their coarse exterior partially adorned with a covering of yellow pea flowers. We passed a herd of yaks nibbling delicately at some of those shrubs, 
with alpine chuffs on the ground nearby, no doubt feeding in turn on the insects in their dung. We'd been seeing the chuffs regularly since the last camp, in ones and twos, their ringing call echoing back from the valley sides. The red and white helicopter passed, here flying level with us, then rising ahead to disappear over the pass at the top of one of two valleys. Where the two valleys parted was the last small village, Yari. One brother headed down for the night supplies, while the other walked on, now carrying both packs that Serin Lama had been carrying. And so, in the late afternoon, the floor of the valley rose steadily until it met the level road. The pleasant stroll ended, and we started on the final climb to the hut. But this time, I did it with Rory the two of us stopping every ten yards or so to bend down and examine another new alpine plant. There were tiny shrubs dotted with small pea flowers, cushion plants studded with pink stars, and in the wet flushes minute primroses and an alpine butterwort, the flowers white with orange centres. We arrived long after the others had their tents erected, but without the struggle I'd been anticipating. Being a botanist can help like that sometimes. For Anne, though, walking with Ajahn Samodo, this had been the toughest of the climbs. By sip-sip, the campsite under the pass, my pulse was a 150 at rest. I was waking up at night breathless, and every time I stood up I thought I was going to faint. With each step, I thought I would vomit. But I kept going, doing just a dozen steps at a time. We had a gamo bag, which is an inflatable chamber to put people in who are suffering from altitude sickness, and you blow up the pressure. But then they have to go down, otherwise they can die from fluid on the lungs. Being the doctor on the trip, I knew if I used it then I wouldn't be able to go on to see Mount Kailash after Hilsa. So even though I felt really faint, I wasn't going to give in. It was just amazing what I put myself through. Alison told me we were just focused on getting up to the climbs by then, so we didn't really notice quite how bad Anne was. In the evening she could be all right. And Ajahn Samedo, how was he doing? Oh, he found those climbs hard, but for his age he was doing really well. And everyone else was fine. And the feeling within the group was very pleasant. At Sip Sip there was also the policeman. Policeman? Yes, yes, we collected him from the police post at Yari. He was a real problem. Indian, well I mean Nepali, but from the plains. I think he slept with the porters. He had to stay with us, and he wasn't happy about it. What? Into Tibet? Yes, with a gun and a little thermos flask. I was suffering many of the same symptoms as Anne. At the campsite, I was wide awake all night long. 
Some of it I spent sitting up meditating in my tent, and occasionally I'd go outside and gaze up at the stars in the cold black sky and the mountain tops glimmering white. Next day it was a short climb up to Sipsip, where the valley widened out to create a flat meadow. On the far side, a steep turf slope dotted with rocks and boulders rose to the Narala Pass, clouds scudding by in the blue sky beyond it. The track widened for this final assault, but had deep gullies from the winter's melting snow, and beside it the rusting remains of a few old Chinese vehicles presumably abandoned when the snow came at the end of the season. There were still patches of white on the hillside about us, but there was no snow left on the track itself. However, it was the far side, facing north, that would be difficult. I arrived at the base of the climb not long after the others, but was soon dropping way behind. Like Anne, I had to keep stopping, my chest heaving. Standing, gazing up to the top, I wondered why I was labouring like this. Surely it couldn't just be age. Ajahn Amro was only a few years younger, and there he was above me, climbing slowly but steadily. And Damaraka was a year older, and he was out of sight. I think it was on the third or fourth stop my legs now getting very wobbly, that I remembered. Four years before, I damaged my lungs with dust when converting our barn to make a meditation space. The doctor reassured me that it would pass. One exposure, even if there was grey asbestos on that roof, wouldn't do permanent damage, and sure enough the pain had gone in a few months. But I'd remained slightly wheezy, I'd simply got used to it. I realised standing there, gazing forlornly up to the pass, that this must be the reason. That was why I had so much trouble in Turkey. Why I was now so slow climbing in the mountains. I damaged my lungs. Not enough to notice in Ireland, but at altitude, where I needed all the lung capacity I had, it became more than obvious. When I eventually toiled up to the top with its pyramid of stones and fluttering prayer flags, everyone, my companions and the porters, were sitting there in silence gazing into Tibet, taking in a very different land. Everything now that was not white was ochre, brown or off-mauve. Western Tibet is a high-altitude desert. The little precipitation falls mostly as snow on the mountains, particularly those on the north side of the Himalayan ridge, where we now were. The slope on the far side was extremely steep, dropping down to the distant river, mostly as one long scree field. Both the old path and the new bulldozed track 
managed the descent by contouring around the slope, disappearing in and out of folds in the scree. There were large snowfields, several covering the track, but all had been traversed previously and were crossed by a line of deep footprints. As long as we were cautious, there should be no problem. Both the ridge top and its north face beside the descending track was covered in low heath with tiny rhododendrons, purple and pale yellow, and a cassope, a kind of heather with delicate hanging white bells, and other new plants. Rory and I had to tear ourselves away to follow the others walking carefully across the snow ahead. Once past the worst snow fields, the walking down was enjoyable. The track went down steadily, but not steeply, winding in and out so that our companions appeared and disappeared ahead, with western Tibet beyond them. Everything here was so much drier. Mostly it was bare scree, but even where there was stable surface, little grew. As we took the curve of the valley itself, the view started to open out and we could see the wide, light brown Tibetan plain in the distance for the first time, with white snow-topped mountains beyond. The mountains looked low, but that was only because the Tibetan plain is so high. Then Hilsa came into view, below us, a huddle of flat-roofed houses, a suspension bridge over the river and the Chinese border buildings on the other side, with a tarmac road leading north. The helicopter came clattering over the Narala Pass above and flew steeply down to a landing area beyond the houses. I realised it must have been from here that Ajahn Sumedho's party saw the Chinese border guards leaving. Yeah, Andrew Yates had told me. We couldn't believe it. We'd been worrying about the monks getting into Tibet the whole way up through Humla. Or we had anyway. Ajahn Sumedho didn't seem to mind. Then when we got that first view, they were packing up. It was the end of their season. We'd come over the pass so late in the year. By the time we got to bottom, they'd driven away, and there was just our land cruisers and a truck waiting for us on the other side of the river. So there was no problem with the monks getting into Tibet. We were so happy. When Ajahn Sumedha came this way, there was just a suspension bridge at Hilsa, crossing the river into Tibet. Now, with the helicopter bringing the Indians, there was a proper Chinese border post on the far side, facing a small urban sprawl in Nepal. A few dozen rough houses, with piles of dirt and rubbish scattered everywhere. A child was shitting yellow diarrhoea in the middle of the main street when I arrived. At least there were two tea houses, sophisticated to us there was actually a choice of food and drink. Rory was relieved. He'd been struggling to eat the rice and lentils ever since he forced it down while feeling sick. Instead, there was fried bread and eggs for omelettes. Damaraco ordered four. 
we bought two rounds of Cokes for the porters to have with their food. They opted for the same dal bat we'd been eating for most of the journey. Then Indra translated a speech from Chris about how good they'd been. Reliable, honest, hard-working and helpful. One of them returning twice to collect things we'd left at a campsite. They looked shyly pleased as Chris gave each an extra day's pay. Once they'd gone, he gave a handsome tip to Indra, who'd been a wonderful guide. During the meal, a pair of land cruisers arrived on the river's far side. But no Tibetan guide came to collect us, as Indra had predicted. When the land cruisers drove off again with the Indian from the helicopter, Indra phoned Roger in Kathmandu, who, with his Germanic certainty, said our transport should be there by now, no question, as he'd insisted they arrive in the local Tibetan town the day before. He would phone their agency in Lhasa. While we waited, Chris mentioned casually that he wouldn't be joining us for the visit to the Western Kingdoms. Instead, he'd camp beside Lake Manasarova and wait for our return to do the Kailash Kora. This, he felt, was the right thing to do on a pilgrimage. There he could spend the time doing meditation by the lake. You see, we'd decided back in England to follow Roger's advice and make the Western Kingdom's trip first to give our bodies time to acclimatise to altitude before climbing higher. Chris had been outvoted then. My heart sank as he told us his plan. But it was Indra who replied, No, no, this is not possible. In Tibet you all together, and with guide, Chinese insist. Chris looked devastated. Then he tried to persuade each of us in turn, but no one was for changing. It was one of those moments. The group dynamic meant he'd have to let go of what he wanted. In Kathmandu, Roger had also managed to persuade the monks they had to cross into Tibet with their robes hidden. Others had previously said the same, but Ajahn Amaro had simply dismissed the possibility, and so I'd agreed quietly with the other laymen that if they were to be turned back, then we'd all return. But Roger was insistent. You can do this. This is not against any rule. You simply have to cover the orange for the border. This is what all Tibetan monks must do. It is skillful means. It is non-contention. The Buddha would have done this. And so on. On our second meeting, the monks gave in. But only for the crossing. Theravada is the conservative school of Buddhism, where such behaviour is frowned upon. In Yaobang, Rinpoche was pleased at their decision. He told us that when coming to Tibet from China or flying into Lhasa, the Chinese now let monks in, but still not at this border. He also told us to hide anything Buddhist. 
in the tea shop, I took off the small Buddha round my neck and hid the CDs and booklets he'd given me for a disciple of his we would be meeting. By now, another two land cruisers had appeared at the Chinese buildings on the river's far side, and Indra suggested we should cross in case the guide was waiting there. So we trudged down the street, carrying our packs, past a row of golden Tibetan prayer wheels, and an Nepali policewoman looking bored inside her sentry box. We crossed the swaying bridge, both railings to begin with, hung with carpets, blankets and clothes drying. On the far side, a dirt track led a few hundred metres beside the river to double gates in a high fence topped with barbed wire. The gates were open and the fence only ran from the river less than 50 metres up the mountainside, but it was obvious that it was here that China began. A pristine tarmac road led from the gates to the newly built border post and then continued out of sight. But our guide wasn't in the building and the land cruisers weren't for us. A border guard insisted in clipped Chinese English. You must go back. Entry only with guide. So we had to trudge back again. Our transport finally arrived as we trailed back across the bridge. Not for us two land cruisers and a truck to carry the luggage, as Ajahn Samedo's group had enjoyed. A small Chinese minibus, covered in dust, drove up to the gates and a young wiry Tibetan, wearing jeans, a black leather jacket and dark glasses, got out to saunter over to meet us. His name, he told us, in good English, with an American twang, was Doge. They were late because of trouble with the minibus. It was old and not really up for the journey from Lhasa. The Chinese border post proved no problem for our disguised monks. We were through in less than an hour. From there we drove on to Purang, the border town, which the Nepalis call Tilarakot, as they once owned it. Dorji and the driver sat in front. In the back of the minibus there was more than enough seats for the six of us, but they were small with little legroom, the windows set too low for the tallest of us to see out fully, and our packs took much of the space left. It was going to be a cramped and unpleasant journey. The near-perfect and empty road skirted a Tibetan village with what looked like the remains of a monastery at its base. Anne's photos included pictures of Ajahn Samedo wandering through houses set on a hillside like that. Dorji said the village was called Zer and the monastery there was gone. At the immigration buildings in Parang, they must have expected only Indians in land cruisers that day. An official trotted across a yard doing up his jacket to invite us into an empty office, where he offered us plastic cups of hot water and insisted we use the comfortable chairs, some of them in front of computers. Mine was on, while we waited. 
There, Apamado, who'd felt slightly sick for days, only just passed a Chinese body scan test meant to exclude infectious diseases. In the town, Rory tried to withdraw Chinese money, but the banks and their machines didn't take Western cards. Feeling washed up and poor, we arrived at our Chinese hotel. A standard municipal block with three floors looking out onto the main street where military trucks and jeeps passed back and forth and every shop was Chinese. The hotel was just like those I'd seen in China. Above the reception desk were the same half-dozen clocks showing the time in different places in the world and beside it the same armchairs with bored Chinese staff. I shared a room with Rory. Most of the night it was flooded with the sound of a karaoke session as Chinese men tried to sing along to Western pop songs so badly I could only make out the occasional word. Not that it made much difference. I spent that night throwing up at regular intervals in the toilet. The racking spasms of retching continued long after I'd nothing left to give. I didn't sleep a wink. I had altitude sickness with a vengeance. Welcome to Tibet. <laughs> 